Hello and welcome once again to episode 50 of Code Completion. We are a group of iOS developers and educators helping to share what we love most about development, Apple technology, and completing your code. My name is Dimitri and I'll be your host once again for this episode and I'm joined today by my fellow completionists, Johnny. Hey everyone. Welcome back. And Spencer. Hey there. Um, so before we get started, uh, let's jump into our indie app spotlight. So today we are checking out Pasty by Ivan uh, Saposnik and uh, a Mac clipboard manager. So Pasty is a quick and powerful clipboard that saves everything you copy so you can quickly access it anytime you need to. Um, you can organize your clips into spaces and those can be further organized. Uh, you can search through your library of clips and do so with speed in mind since uh, you use Command Shift V to bring up Pasty anytime you need to. Uh, Pasty is completely free to try and costs only $15 to unlock all its features for good, so please be sure to support Ivan and check it out today. And are you an indie developer? We want to hear from you. Please reach out to us on Twitter at CodeCompletion via DM so we can spotlight your app in the future as well. So uh, before we jump into our main topic, we are at episode 50, yay, which we're celebrating after our one year uh, of doing this because we had a hiatus uh last last december ish which we're gonna not have this year right (laughs) totally totally uh so yay good to reach this point yeah i agree it's it's kind of crazy that we've been doing it this long it doesn't seem like uh we have but you know pretty cool to to get to 50 of anything is is impressive so there's to 50 more and we can get to 100 that'll be even cooler well, I mean, huge, huge props to you guys. I mean, you got you guys have been sort of the 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 ones that have been on pretty much every episode. I don't know that there's been an episode without Dimitri. There maybe been a few without Spencer, yeah. but you you guys definitely deserve the props for for really being a part of all fifty of those. So, claps also, to you for sure. Spencer is a part of all of them because he edits all of them afterwards. So that's true. Uh, that's true. This is true. Yep. Extra special thanks to Spencer for actually <laughs> making this possible because without that, there'd be no episode. <laughs> Happy to do it. Uh, so for our main topic today, um, we wanted to discuss uh, and go over Objective C and what makes it uh, different from Swift and what to look out for uh, when you are coming from Swift. So everything nowadays is Swift, 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 but um, I don't know about both of you. I still need to use Objective-C every now and then uh, on the daily. Um, and I know, Spencer, you pretty much live in Objective-C land now. Yeah, more, more or less, especially with you know any um, bugs that I'm working on. They, they generally tend to be in Objective-C uh, just because the amount of Objective-C we have is, is quite large. I think the last time we checked, it was something like... 85 or so percent of our code base was was objective c still so anything new that i can write uh i'll i'll write in in swift even like you know if i'm adding a protocol um adoption to some view controller or something i'll make an extension and throw that in, in swift but yeah definitely a lot of objective c um at my day job yeah yeah we're i mean we're slowly transitioning out of it i think last i checked we're probably at 70% 70% Swift, 30% Objective-C. And I think it I think it used to be about 50-50 when I started about four years ago. So we're definitely doing everything we can to, at least I, personally, I do everything I can to avoid writing Objective-C. So <laughs> same as you, Spencer. Mm-hmm. If there is a way for me to write a, a Swift extension on something, that's, that's what I'll do because I much prefer it. And I know that future developers that come after me would, you know, Objective C is going to be, you know, more and more uh, unknown to new developers, and so I think as as new developers come in, they'll really appreciate all the Swift extensions we we work on and and try to make things a, little, a lot easier. Yeah, and I think that's that's probably why we want to talk about this today is because I'm sure a lot of new developers have just learned Swift and their amount of Objective C that they've used is fairly little and. Really, that includes myself, where before this job, uh, the only Objective-C that I wrote was really in, like, lessons to teach, mm-hmm. you know, students Objective-C. I hadn't sat down and, and gone through any amount of a project on my own purely in Objective-C. So 
um, where I think we're going to try to cover a lot of like the uh, uh, nuances and like uh, kind of things that you need to be aware of with Objective-C that we just aren't really, uh, we don't need to worry about or syntax is completely different in Swift. Totally. Yeah, so let's start with that syntax. So Objective-C brings forth lots of semicolons, lots of square brackets, uh, the the fabled block syntax. Um, are <laughs> Were any of them uh, like, surprising when you had to kind of like move over from one to the other um that you kept messing up perhaps or that you kept forgetting about i mean at least for me personally the i remember when i was first starting as a developer having a senior sit next to me as i was trying to write this objective c code and i'd like hit you know i'd build it or run it compile it and he would always be like semicolon semicolon (laughs) i just like I could not get that. I could not get that muscle memory. Um, and then I think even still, uh, there's there's sort of this. You you know, do I use dot syntax or do I use brackets? You can do either or. Uh, and and I don't think it was always that way. Uh, that it, you used to always have to use brackets, and then a new version of Objective C came in and said, oh, you can use dot syntax for Objective some C things, 2.0. But, but not other things. And I think that still gets me sometimes. It's like, can I do all dots here? When do I need to add a new bracket? Uh, I still have never like officially learned the rules uh, for when you can use dot syntax versus the brackets. As far as I know, and Dimitri can correct me here because he's our resident Objective-C expert, um, you can use dot syntax on properties and that's about it because if you try to use dot syntax on methods, they won't even autocomplete. They won't even show up at all. Um, I don't know if there are more nuanced um, uh, kind of reasons to use, uh, you know, uh, square brackets over um, over uh, dot syntax within um, properties, but that's that's kind of what I learned is just properties can do dot syntax and methods you can't. Yeah, that's basically it. Um, some, anything semant- that's semantically a property, uh, whether it's described with at property syntax or it's just a method that's a getter, basically, um, you can go ahead and use uh, dot syntax for, and it's encouraged for you to use dot syntax for those situations. Um, but uh, as as Spencer said, uh, like there is nuance there in that any method that doesn't take any arguments can technically be called. Uh, via dot syntax, but if your method does something, um, and it's not just fetching data, but it actually has side effects, uh, you usually never want to use it with dot syntax. Uh, you want to preserve the bracket syntax for like sending messages uh, for those situations, and then keep the variations that are free of side effects, meaning you aren't changing other pieces of code unintentionally or other data unintentionally by calling it. Um, you'll want to use dot syntax for those. Today I learned. Thanks. <laughs> I'm sure I'll be doing a lot of that today. Um, I think for me, one thing that's still like, I feel okay with semicolons at this point. It's like fairly natural, but bracket syntax, it's not weird anymore. Like I used to look at it as just this absolute alien looking, you know, lines of code where it, there were just so many square brackets. But I was even dealing with something. Um, like yesterday where I, I, you know, had, it was me writing an extension, adopting a protocol in Swift. Um, and then I had to set the delegate of something, uh, to that object, um, in objective C. And so it was like, a um, yeah. Um, so, you know, I said, you know, add the delegate and then I had to say like, whatever, alloc init and pass in the delegate. Anyway, point is I was kind of doing like, I was setting the delegate and initializing that delegate kind of in the same line. And what is frustrating and I get why it probably can't always work is when you try to end a a bracket, it doesn't always place the bracket in the right place and you kind of have to go back. And I like literally have to count the brackets because I can't always remember to do it beforehand, if that makes sense. So probably Mm -hmm. better to do it beforehand, but sometimes I'm just not thinking about it. Then I have to, you know, go remove the bracket where Xcode put it and put it in the right place. And that, that can be frustrating. 
Yeah, I, I definitely echo that. Um, because you get used to Xcode just like holding your hand through that process. And mm-hmm. then when it doesn't work, it just doesn't work spectacularly well. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, no, that is not at all where I wanted it. Um, but if for any of you that are using Objective-C, something you can do is double-click the brackets, and that will highlight the entire mm-hmm. um, section, uh, the whole method, basically. And that kind of helps visually see like where it starts and where it ends, which can help you uh, as you're writing these very nested um message callbacks uh so that we can go ahead and see like where things start and where things end nice yeah personally for me i think the part of syntax that trips me up the most is if if statements uh so putting parentheses versus not putting parentheses yes is the bane of my existence when switching back and forth uh because in swift you don't generally put parentheses around your if statements and it just naturally looks cleaner i guess um, mm-hmm. but no other language is happy with that. Um, so you are left writing out your if statement and nothing is right. And then realizing that you need to put parentheses around everything. Um, uh, hoping that Xcode does not self implode in the process, um, of like, cannot compile your Swift code and let's gobble up some memory in the background. Um, yeah. And so. it's, it's frustrating when you start writing an if statement in objective C and you're like, why isn't, you know, X property auto-completing? And it's like, it needs the parentheses before it will even start auto-completing. And you're like, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, all right. Um, I, I feel like I mentioned the parentheses in, in like if statements every episode. So there are probably like 25 instances of me raging about that by now. We, we have a um, kind of like a rubber ducky channel in our Slack group. And Johnny asked a question about... Um, switch statements in Objective-C. So why don't you kind of walk us through um, what happened there with, with your oh, switch statement issue? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, it, yeah, it's embarrassing. I I totally shipped this. Um, it was a it was this thing where we were going to kind of auto-populate someone's timeline with, like, an essentials guide for how to use day one. Um, and so there was a button inside of like our support settings where you could go and you could tap it and it would essentially create this essentials guide and open it up. Um, the problem was, is, uh, you know, the switch statement that we were using, um, it was an objective C. So I didn't think much of it when I went in to add a new case. It's like, Hey, when the user taps on this index path, do this, right? Add this essentials guide. Um, and, when, uh, you know, so I shipped this out, not thinking much of it. And then we had users who they were tapping the row above it to open up their previous like support conversations, like their intercom conversations. And as soon as they would close it, they would see that essentials guide open. And I was, when, when our support team was like, yeah, we've got this bug. I was just baffled. I was like, how is that possible? Like, I would even I went in and I debugged it and I was like, okay, I'm tapping this. The index path is two here, but the breakpoint was falling into the index path is equal to three uh, in the switch statement, which just like didn't make any sense to me. I was like, what? Since when is index path two equal to three? Uh, and it made no it made no sense to me. Uh, but that's where this having to use break comes in. Um, is that I was just missing a break statement to essentially say, hey, don't, you know, call this method on this index path and then continue. And I think I still don't really understand why, like if you do have a conditional statement where you're saying only go onto this path if the index path is three, I'm still, still kind of, you know, not clear to me why it falls into that why it was falling into the the index path is equal to three um condition yeah so when you when you mentioned that like why is objective c think that two is equal to three i immediately thought of a situation where if you assigned two to a boolean and you assigned three to a boolean those would both be equal um because they're technically both true uh, even though they're not the same value and in memory, they're not the same value, but like in if statements, it could be a little weird. Um, and I thought that was perhaps happening, but, uh, once you share the code, then it immediately became obvious because switch statements in Objective-C or more accurately, Swift statements in C 
uh, they are not the same thing as switch statements in Swift. So um, if you kind of grew up with Swift as your one and only language, you have been spoiled by the enums and the switch statements that the language empowers you with because they are truly amazing and game-changing. And they pretty much break your understanding of any other switch statement in any other language. Frankly, C has the worst implementation of a Swift lang- uh, a switch statement, um, especially when you use it from Objective-C. One, you cannot have multiple statements in a case. Like, it's just like a one statement kind of thing. You can't declare variables sometimes, depending on the C dialect that you're using. Um, it's It's every bit as messy as you can imagine. But the biggest downside of them is a switch statement is not a shortcut for an if, else if, else if, else if kind of uh, conditional, uh, where if you go into one of those and then that's it, you're not going to automatically fall through to the next case um, there. But with a switch statement, it's kind of designed by default to have a fall through behavior where you're going to jump to a specific case and then you're going to handle every case from that point forward unless you say break. Um, And that behavior is uh, ripe with misunderstanding and bugs, (laughs) let's go (laughs) ahead and say. Um, so you basically experienced it firsthand where you went to a previous, um, in this case, index path, uh, and it automatically did that one and then continued to the following one, uh, because there was no break in between. Um, and yeah, that's, that's one of the big issues with, uh, switch statements in C specifically is it will fall through automatically. You can do this in Swift if you use the fall through keyword, but you need to use that keyword. Uh, because they they found out very early on that this is going to be problematic for new like learners of programming. Uh, so let's go ahead and nip this in the bud right away. Kind of like the same thing with the plus plus i and the i plus uh, plus variations. Like if you don't know what the difference between those two things are, never use that syntax because you are going to get in trouble when you eventually do use it incorrectly. Um, and they pretty much found out, hey, this is only being used in like four, uh, four loops. So let's get rid of this ancient four loop syntax as well. And then now we just have the nice new one um, with four ends. So long story short, don't use Objective-C switch statements. <laughs> or if you do, make sure you put a break. Yeah, yep, a break case. on every case. Yep. I think you can even put curly braces around if you want multiple statements. Like, you have to get creative once you want to use them for something a little bit more complicated than a very quick, like, lookup table, because that's basically what it enables. Another thing that Objective-C handles very differently than Swift uh, is nil messaging and optionals. So in Swift, you have to say, this particular variable is an optional. It can be nil or it can be anything else. Uh, In Objective-C, everything is an optional, maybe? (laughs) It's a little hard to quantify because it depends on what you're talking about. All objects are certainly optional. They can always be nil. Um, Nil meaning all zeros in the pointer address for the memory, like where it's referring to elsewhere where the object actually lives. It's either a number somewhere in memory or zero, nil. Um, That said, a number can also be nil if it's equal to zero. That's the same thing in memory. Uh, You have an int. If it's all zeros, then it's nil but it's also zero. So you can't have zero and nil at the same time. Uh, And that's actually something that is also confusing to people that are jumping from Swift to Objective-C. You might think, hey, I want to have an int and I want it to be optional. Like, how can I describe that situation? Well, in Objective-C, they had to get very creative. There's ns not found, which is just a very uh, large negative number uh, for all intents and purposes. I think it's int max or something like that. Um, And that represents a nil integer in a way. Um, But it's not really nil. It's just a very big integer that you're never going to come across naturally. Uh, So they just decided to name that one not found um, or NS not found. So anytime you're dealing with table views and stuff like that, you'll you'll hit that one. Uh, But uh, when it comes down to using the actual, like an int and you want it to be an optional, there is another alternative and that's use NS number. Um, NS number being an object, meaning it can have all zeros for its pointer and not represent anything. But NS number is not something that's easy to use. You can't add them and stuff uh, like that. Not that you can do that easily with optionals anyways. So 
Um, I don't know how, how much of a downgrade that is for, to go from that to an S number. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, as yeah, as far as you know, op, optionals optionality goes in in Swift and Objective C, it's definitely interesting because one one thing that um, I, I wasn't around when this happened or anything, but um, in Objective C, like yeah, like Dimitri said, everything is is essentially optional. There's no real um, reference to something being optional or not until. Uh, Swift came around and they're, you know, adding interoperability between Swift and Objective-C. And then they added, <clears throat> excuse me, keywords like nullable, non-null um, to allow your Objective-C code to, or rather your Swift code to kind of know if you were bridging from Objective-C what, you know, if something really should be treated as optional or non-optional. Now that we kind of do have this actual logical separation in Swift, um, but it, it it is really interesting how you use you could use the same objects in Objective C and Swift in the sense that there's you know no you don't have to I guess I should say there's you don't have to check for nil you could just pass something into any method and you're good because it doesn't care if it's optional or not um, you obviously want to handle if it's nil. Um, before you maybe do something, but a lot of times things are like no ops. And so if they just don't work, they don't work and it's not really a huge issue. Um, but then you could run into things like if you pass something in, well, actually, I don't know. So maybe Dimitri, you could, uh, help me with this view. If, if you have an object and you try to like perform a selector on it, but the object itself is nil, is that a no op or would it get mad at you and say it couldn't perform that selector? Yeah, so if you if you call a method on an object and that object happens to be nil, uh, it it is a no op, so it will oh, not okay. do anything, and that's by design. It's basically there so that way you don't have to have if object equals does not equal null everywhere, um, and that was specifically a uh, hint towards Java where you had to have that everywhere, otherwise you're going to have a runtime crash um, when you tried uh, to call a method on. A non-nil object, so it was a it was a developer productivity thing, um, and it was kind of a big culture shock when a lot of Objective C developers needed to start learning Swift. It was all of a sudden like, why can't I just do it this way? Like I'm more productive this way. Um, but to write good code that doesn't ha like have side effects from like methods not being called um, or methods being called with nil arguments uh, and things kind of going wrong in those situations. Uh, you need to really be careful about how you design those APIs and how you implement them. Um, and if you are careful, then it's probably fine for you to have this um, this developer productivity feature basically uh, in there. But Swift decided that it was really not worth it, so they're going to introduce a new language feature, Optionals, um, and that will give the developer more control. You can still do this, where if you call... A method on something that's nil, nothing's going to happen. That's using the question mark dot optional chaining syntax. Um, but if you do want to know when that goes wrong, you can. Um, and that's by checking for optionals first, not using that syntax or using explicitly unwrapped ones. Um, that can go ahead um, and tidy up those scenarios. Hmm. And like you bring it up when you brought it up when you mentioned perform selector. Uh, but in Objective-C, everything is dynamically dispatched. What does that mean? Uh, it basically means that when you call a method in Objective-C, it's going to not actually directly call that method like a function. It's going to ask the object first, hey, do you know what to do with this method that's being called? And that object can go ahead and say yes, like I can handle it. No, I can't handle it. Or dynamically at runtime someone else can say hey like if any messages come over to steve let me know i'll i'll be sure to handle those messages and uh relay them to the to the proper to the proper people um but you can go ahead and do that in objective c and that's at the at in one instance very powerful you can fix framework bugs for instance uh, because you can go ahead and say, like, hey, Apple's code, it's great that you exist, but you're buggy <laughs> on this OS, so let me go ahead and patch in a version of my own. Um, and you can actually do that in Objective-C rather easily. 
um, and the language as a whole enables this uh, to be done as easily as possible because a whole bunch of things rely on it. Like anytime you have actions and targets and mm-hmm. things like that, those are very generic methods that don't necessarily need to exist anywhere in particular. Um, and on the Mac, for instance, the first responder will go ahead and use that to implement the menus. So menus just have an action associated with them. They don't have a target. Um, and that means that it will just go ahead and walk the responder chain to say, hey, do you do? Do you know what to do with this uh, copy action? And then a view can say, no, I have no clue. But then it goes up to the <laughs> super view and the super view and the view controller. And the view controller might say, hey, I know what to do with copy. Uh, and then it can go ahead and handle that. But if nothing knows what to do with copy, then copy will be grayed out automatically. Um, so a lot of this kind of works for free um, by the nature of dynamic dispatch. Um, but Swift does not have dynamic dispatch at all. In fact, most of Swift is what's called statically dispatched, meaning at compile time, if you say you want to call this method, it's going to go ahead and call that method directly, which is way faster uh, than dynamic dispatch. But it doesn't have as much leeway as Objective-C does when it comes time to tweaking that uh, behavior. Yeah. Um, So I'm not sure if they're the same thing or not, but you mentioned like you could fix framework bugs. Is that like an instance of using swizzling or is that is it kind of separate when you want to like you're purposely swizzling a method or maybe not purposely so swizzling would be to replace uh, a method basically say hey this method that already exists uh we're going to rename it into something else and it will still Mm -hmm. be callable um but the the original name let's go ahead and call my method instead um and that will be what's called uh whenever it gets called you don't necessarily need to do swizzling. You can just declare a category on NS object, and then all objects have that method. Um, mm-hmm. And it's not well defined whether your method will be called or the one that's implemented by a subclass of something. Um, because now you've basically said, hey, this method now exists um, with my name. And that's why Apple mm-hmm. says, hey, anytime you're writing categories, please, please, please prefix those. Uh, because if you don't, uh, right. they might just uh, be reused elsewhere. Um, or at least the name might be reused, and that could cause all sorts of manner of problems. Yeah, are you able to... We, yeah, I guess, like, swizzle a method on purpose that maybe is, like, an Apple-made method uh, and have it go through review, or is that something they explicitly disallow? So they explicitly disallow any call to private API. Now, if you go ahead and swizzle something, as long as you don't have the direct name of a private API as a string, uh, they cannot know that you are swizzling a private API Mm. because what they're doing is they're scanning your application binary um, and they're looking for that string uh, of a particular API. And if that string exists in your binary, then you're probably calling it and that's going to be a no-no. But if that string does not appear exactly like that maybe you spelt it backwards and you reverse the string uh right, before yeah. calling it or you piecemealed it together with like multiple smaller strings um you can very often get away with a lot of this the easiest way to make sure is to go to the terminal and just run the strings command um which is a great way of finding out all the strings that are in your binary um and you can very easily find access to API keys that people like to embed in their apps, um, which don't right. embed API keys in your apps. They're meant for servers. Um, but yeah, uh, use this knowledge for good, not for bad. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, that actually reminds me. So Spencer, every now and then you you reach out to us on that Rubber Ducky channel and you're like, delegates, what do I do with delegates? Yeah. Um, and a lot of this comes from the fact that in Swift, you cannot have optional uh, protocol methods. They have mm-hmm. to be implemented. Uh, but in, in Objective-C, you can have optional protocol methods, meaning it's up to whoever is implementing the delegate to implement this method or not. Um, so a nice thing about dynamic dispatch is you can choose at runtime, hey, does the delegate implement this method? Can perform selector? And you can pass in that selector. Um, And then if it does, you can directly call that method. You can assume it exists and nothing bad will happen. Uh, This is kind of like using uh, explicitly unwrapped optionals in Swift. 
if you know that the optional cannot be nil because you just assigned it, for instance, but it's an explicitly unwrapped optional, you can safely call it with an exclamation mark and you're not going to ever run into a crash. And that's why you have that escape hatch uh, out of like writing another if let statement, for instance. Um, so in Objective-C, you can do the same thing. You can ask it if it uh, performs a particular method, can perform selector, I think it's called. Um, mm-hmm. And then you can just call it directly um, and that will uh, that will go ahead and call the method. Never try to never use perform selector directly, oh. um, because perform selector uh, does work. But uh, arc the automatic retain release um, cannot make assumptions as far as how your arguments are being used or how the return method is being used, um, the return type is being used, and therefore that all kind of breaks down once you try to use it with arc enabled. Uh, so perform selector is, although still useful, uh, not something that you should use in regular production code, unless you're doing really hacky things with swizzling and stuff like that. Um, yeah. in which case, you know, you know, you've been bad at that point. <laughs> yeah. It, it, well, it's sort of related to this, going back to that example of, of me doing something with a delegate, um, Something that I have noticed, and I, I think I remarked that time, was Objective-C is like very set in its ways and opinionated. So I kind of brought the, that issue to them as, um, can I check if a class conforms to a protocol? There's, there's a method called conforms to protocol. And Dimitri and Fernando, who are the ones that are much more uh, versed in Objective-C than I am, they were like, absolutely not, do not use this. And, it, you know, it was, it was very clear, don't don't use that. It's, and it's interesting to me that because Objective, probably because of Objective-C being um, so mature and having been around so long, um, it, it is much more opinionated. And it's funny that there are, like, good APIs and bad APIs to use. And maybe it's just because we're in Swift land and, like, everything is nice and it all sort of works um, that we don't really deal with that. But um, that is something that I find not frustrating, but maybe interesting because there may be a couple, three, four ways to do something. And there's like an explicitly like, this is the way you should do it. It's not like it'll, it'll work okay anyway. Maybe there is a best solution in Swift, but it's like, there are very explicit, like do not use this API type of things in Objective-C. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. At that point, is it is it just a matter of, um, you know, practicing getting used to the language, or I guess maybe that's the the point where reading a book on Objective C would maybe give you those those opinions yourself a little bit faster. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think a lot of it is like nuanced history because Objective-C is a 20, 25-year-old language at this point, yeah. um, probably more. But the frameworks themselves, like AppKit, Foundation, those are like multiple decades old. Uh, and something like Perform Selector has been in the language or in those libraries for a very long time. Uh, and therefore, there's a lot of code that relies on it. So you can't really deprecate it. Um, but it requires like... K- careful finesse and handling to use it properly. Um, For instance, as soon as you have a return type, it's probably going to not end well uh, in terms of like arc uh, and things like that. It does convert things like that are not Objective-C, like ints and other primitive types into NS number and NS value. It does do those conversions for you, um, but it's not going to do them as optimally as you could otherwise. Um, So... Oftentimes in Objective-C, you just kind of write a header for the method that you want to call, and it's available yeah. because the compiler yep. doesn't really care. Uh, it just wants to know what the method kind of looks like um, so it can make the right assumptions when it comes to whether to retain something or release something. Um, but message send, which is the function, it's an actual function that gets called every time you call any method in Objective-C, um, it doesn't really care. Uh, it's doing the same thing that perform selector is doing, basically. Perform selector doing what message send is doing, um, I should say. Um, so, yeah, like you said, it's a lot of nuanced opinion and older knowledge that is not necessarily readily available and readily findable um, if you're just kind of stumbling down this path. 
Um, and I think that's something that Swift wanted to make easier, uh, but is ironically harder when it comes to like Swift UI uh, and stuff like yeah. that because you don't have all the documentation and all the methods in one place, and you have to like hunt around for them. Um, so small segue into headers. Headers are amazing. I love headers uh, because <laughs> they kind of organize all the code in one place uh, that is publicly callable, and it allows the writer of that document uh, to organize in a way that makes sense to them. It's not just haphazardly uh, put together. It can be put together in any order that the writer wants it to be. Um, so for that reason, I think headers are wonderful. What is your, What are your thoughts on headers, Johnny? <laughs> Do you like headers? Um, you know, I think initially just like the concept of having two separate class files was confusing. Um, you know, initially I was, I wasn't sure like, Oh, what goes in the H, what goes in the M if it's in the H, what part of it needs to go in the M. And, um, but now I, I think it's a really, you know, for as messy as objective C feels, uh, header files make the, make it feel less messy just because it's it's a really nice place that's like, hey, if I need public access to this method, like just throw it in the header file. Like, um, and so in that sense, it yeah, it really does keep things clean because it's easy to sort of distinguish. Hey, like this should be available uh, across different classes, and uh, you know, and then all of these, all of the finer details, uh, you know, are obviously in in the M file. Uh, so it's almost like a you know a nice little facade of of you know putting reducing the the complexity of of your Objective C classes uh, by having sort of a a library or um, like a table of contents of what what's actually available in that in that class. Yeah, I think that's that's a pretty good way of looking at it is like a table of contents. Obviously, you've got, you know, methods that are not public and everything. But um, what I'll do in Swift is look, I, I don't know what it's called, but there's like that little like bread, bread tr crumb trail of, you know, your files. And then on the file, you've got like what method or property you're in. You can click that and see all of all of the methods and properties. But it's nice to just go into the header and very quickly read out things you get all of the types in there and it's, it's pretty easy to read. Um, so yeah, I agree. I think just like Johnny, I was not too keen on, on headers and, and, uh, M files to begin with, but now it's, it's pretty nice and I don't mind it. Um, I think the thing that will trip me up sometimes is, um, the fact that like, like I mentioned, I've been writing extensions of objective C classes in Swift. And even if it's an, in an extension, I have to, if I need to access something from the Swift side, I need to make it public uh, for the Swift to even like recognize that, it, it, even though it's the same class. So kind of interesting, the, um, the relationship there between the two languages. Yeah, and that's a great seg segue into header uh, categories and extensions in Objective-C. So a category, although it might feel like a Swift extension, it is nowhere near... Uh, as powerful or as nice uh, as a Swift extension is. Um, so in Swift, you can make an extension on pretty much anything uh, and add functions and methods to uh, that underlying type so that way you can call those methods from anywhere. Um, since uh, Swift is statically dispatched, basically the compiler is going to see, oh, your extension exists. I'm just going to call that method directly. You don't have to deal with any sort of inheritance with those and stuff like that. Whereas in Objective-C, when you declare a category on something, that is inserting dynamically that method into the method table that exists for that type. Uh, so if you have a category in NS object, it exists on everything. Um, and that's actually how delegate methods used to be declared, um, like a UI table view. There wasn't a UI table view delegate. There's just UI table view and it had a delegate uh, property that was of type ID, meaning any NS object. Mm -hmm. uh, and any NS object can go ahead and basically implement the methods that were declared inside of a category. But that category didn't have an implementation along with it. It was just saying, hey, these methods exist. Like, this is what they're named. You should copy-paste these. 
Um, and that's basically so that way the compiler knows that they exist um, and it can autocomplete them. Um, oh, that's but, interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, so that was pre, pre-protocols in Objective-C, which is basically right. pre-UIKit Objective-C. Um, UIKit basically brought with it um, a lot of the protocol uh, rewrites of the headers um, and everything, just so that way everything's a bit cleaner. Um, but protocols in Objective-C, not really super uh, powerful. Um, like, don't ever use conforms to protocol. It's not useful. Yep. <laughs> uh, because, as I said before, all the methods can be optional. So, therefore, it doesn't matter if it conforms to the protocol or not. It matters if it implements a method. Um, so, the only way to know if it implements a method is to ask, hey, do you implement this method? Uh, and if it says yes, then you call it, it will not crash. Um, so, that's a nice thing. Um, but, yeah, extensions in Swift, kind of OP, super powered. Uh, extensions in Objective-C, uh, from the point of view of categories, uh, fraught with potential difficulty if you try to do anything too complex. Um, they have their uses, uh, but it's oftentimes better to find a way of not using them, uh, if, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Are extensions in Objective-C implemented the same way, or are do they... Are they not quite the same as under the hood as categories? So an extension in Objective C is technically a category, a private category. Just, so okay, so like the unnamed ones. Yeah, the unnamed ones. Um, right. okay. And the special thing about these is you can only have uh, one of these on a type that you declare, like with an at interface within the same program or module. Uh, because what objective what the compiler will do is just basically glue together all the interface files that don't have category names, um, which means you can declare new instance variables in all of those as well. Um, so that's super practical to kind of split up um, to split up everything in between multiple files and stuff like that. Um, as a rule, you can only declare your properties and instance variables in one place. But because it is in one place at the end of the comp- compilation step, then it works out. Otherwise, you can't really declare new uh, instance variables in categories. You can kind of do that via the runtime. So you can associate a value with an object um, at runtime. Um, but in terms of actually doing it uh, pre-runtime, you can't really do that for any object that you didn't declare yourself. Um, gotcha. So that's the big difference. And I think that kind of leads into being instance variables and stuff like that, uh, structs. So in Objective-C, all classes are structs, just not in the stack. They're thrown away onto that thing called the heap, and you get a nice little reference pointer uh, to them so that way you can go ahead and use them. Um, But structs do exist, and they are part of C, uh, the C language. And if you want to use them, you need to use wacky C syntax to kind of name them because... C does not have, like, an opinion as far as how you should name your things. So you need to, like, name it twice. I never understood it. It makes no sense at all to me. Uh, same thing goes for enums. Crazy town over there. Yeah. Um, Gotta, like, name it three times, uh, which I don't understand. Uh, do either of you know what's up with that? <laughs> or it's just wild no. speculation? <laughs> no. Luckily, I've never had to deal with structs directly in, in Objective-C. I've, yeah. You know, everyone just says stay away from them. I'm like, okay, cool. And, you know, obviously they're not near as, as powerful or really um, comparable to the Swift struct. So they're not really, you know, the same per se. So they I, are actually the same thing. Are they? Yeah. So really? memory layout wise, a Swift struct is the same thing as a C struct. Convenience wise, they're totally different. Like you can't have yeah, okay. C structs and stuff like that. But like intercompatibility wise, they're the exact same thing. Um, I did not know that. Down to the padding and layout. Uh, And that's like purposely chosen so that way everything is intercompatible. Um, But yeah, structs are just all their individual properties glued together as one memory thing. There's no metadata associated with it. Um, Whereas classes, um, both in Swift and in Objective-C, they have some metadata that's added to that struct, but it's still a struct. Uh, So Mm. you can go ahead and poke around at it like raw memory style if you really wanted to. Uh, things shouldn't blow up too much if you're careful. <laughs> All right, I stand corrected. That's cool to know. 
But yeah, in Objective-C, like you mentioned, they are kind of like, stay away, because you can't declare methods on them, so you need to declare functions. Uh, yeah. And therefore, you need to have functions whose first argument is the object that you're trying to modify, which is basically how object-oriented programming was done before you had object-oriented languages. Like, it wasn't impossible, you just have to wrap your mind around it a slightly different way, and that's all Objective-C is, is the compiler taking shortcuts, so that way you can have object-oriented programming in a way that is like enabling fast app development um and that is something that uh swift kind of embraced further so it ratifies what a struct is as a value type ratifies what a class is as a reference type um and makes that all one nice package uh that you can go ahead and use that doesn't have too much ambiguity between the two of them but doesn't make one less less powerful than the other in terms of like protocols and extensions and enabling methods uh and stuff like that so um i i really like what swift has and that kind of shows objective c's age that it doesn't have those things when you need to use them um even basic things like did sets and stuff like that um it's all really convenient uh, in swift land um and really awkward in objective c for instance if you want to have a value type you need to declare two classes, an immutable one and a mutable one. And that's what the Swift, the Objective-C frameworks do with like string. You have NS string, NS mutable string. NS, I was going to say number, but there's no NS dictionary, mutable number. Mutable dictionary. Yeah, dictionary, mutable dictionary. Um, where yeah. Swift has like a really clean, hey, a dictionary is a value type. Uh, and with it comes a whole bunch of conveniences. Like, hey, you can just copy a dictionary just by passing it to a different variable. And now you have two dictionaries. Um, but they don't actually copy until you modify one of them, which is super neat. Um, so good on Swift uh, there. Watch out when you're using Objective-C. You need to manually say copy. Don't just assign it to a different variable and assume it's different. So this week's episode of Code Completion is brought to you by NotPhu. Tired of eating the same old meals time and time again? Consider Vietnamese food. You might already know pho, but there are a ton of other flavors specific to Vietnamese cuisine that are sadly not well known around the world. This includes everything from sandwiches like banh mi, rice plates like kom tam, and even the deliciously savory crepes known as banh seo. That's where the app Not Pho comes in. It's a free-to-try app dedicated to teaching you more about the wonders behind Vietnamese cuisine, brought to life with colorful and interactive illustrations and animations. Learn how to make many classic Vietnamese flavors at home, but even if you don't cook, you'll know how to order like a pro the next time you visit your local Vietnamese restaurant. New since version 1.1 is the Chef Club, regularly bringing you even more recipes like avocado mango smoothies, fried rice, chicken curry, and my personal favorite, chicken beef, for the low cost of $2 a month, with more recipes added regularly. This month, the Chef Club saw the addition of shrimp and grilled pork spring rolls, which make for a perfectly refreshing snack for the late summer heat. Thanks again to NotPhu for sponsoring our show. Search for NotPhu, that's N-O-T space P-H-O on the App Store today to give it a try completely for free. So now that we've gone through our topics, it's time for Complete the Code, where we quiz our listeners on your knowledge of Swift, Apple, and all things development. Spencer? Yep. Uh, so we haven't got any guesses in yet, so let's go over last week's prompt one more time. Um, of course, if you're listening to the podcast, you can check the podcast art or the show notes to follow along. Uh, so the prompt is, how can you use UI view controller's update view constraints method to qu- quickly swap between very different view layouts? So thank you, Spencer. If you think you can complete the code, please tweet your answers to us at hashtag complete the code. All in word, the first to get it right, we'll get a shout out on next week's episode. So now that that's all out of the way, it's time for Compiler Error, a segment where I get to test my fellow completionist knowledge about Swift, Apple, and all things development. And since Johnny is joining us, that means we can go ahead and hold it this time. Uh, we have uh, Swift being used in different tool chains. So Swift uh, is available on macOS and iOS, and we're well aware of those. But it's also available on multiple tool chains. Um, some are very bizarre, so let's go over them. Uh, the first one is Droid UI, which builds on earlier efforts to get Swift compiling for Android by adding interconnects to existing Java-based libraries so an entire app could be built. Statement number two, Project 1 is an attempt at implementing an x86 kernel completely in Swift that can run bare metal on Intel Macs and PCs. This is with like no operating system, just plain Swift. 
Statement number three, Swift Embedded is a tool chain to compile Swift so it can run on a microcontroller directly with no host operating system. And statement number four, Swift Wasm WebAssembly is a tool chain allowing Swift code to be compiled to WebAssembly with full bridging to the DOM. So, Johnny, uh, why don't you go first? Well, I was looking forward to hearing Spencer's reasoning before you'd make me pick. You can enjoy uh, that afterwards. <laughs> uh, um, I'm going to go with number one. An excellent choice. Spencer? All right. Um, I'm going to kind of go backwards. I'm fairly sure Swift Wasm is a thing. I think I've heard of that before. Maybe we've talked about it. Maybe not in the podcast, but in um, in our Slack group. So I, I want to say that is a thing. Uh, Swift Embedded, I'm almost certain, is a thing. It's just a very small subset of Swift. Um, I think I joined a Slack group one time or was looking into putting Swift on an Arduino for some reason. Um, so I'm fairly sure that exists as well. Um, so yeah, Johnny, good job on picking one of the two because I'll just go with number two because I think it's one or two. Um, I'm going to, I think I would have gone with two anyway, just because Droid UI, like sort of linking it up to Java libraries sounds like something that is like somewhat reasonable. Whereas implementing an entire kernel in Swift seems uh, a little hardcore and I don't even know if that's possible. So I'll go with number two. Okay, so let's take these in reverse order since you both agree uh, with number four being true. So going over it one more time, Swift, Swift Wasm is a tool chain allowing Swift code to be compiled into WebAssembly uh, with full bridging to the DOM. And both of you are completely correct that this is a real thing. Um, so for those who don't know, you can compile like C, C++ code into something called WebAssembly, which will then run on any browser. Um, and it will run quite a bit faster than uh, JavaScript because it's already been optimized by your compiler. So uh, the, the browser itself doesn't need to analyze your code um, in an attempt to make sure that it's going to be as fast as it can be. Uh, you just compile it ahead of time. You can take as long as you need to compile it. And then you have uh, nice and optimized code that uh, can just be loaded statically like whenever the page loads. Um, and you can definitely use any most languages that plug into LLVM for this, uh, but it requires a bit of extra support to properly connect up to everything. Um, and Swift Wasm brings all that support to Swift. Um, so along with that, there's like Tokamak, which is a library to directly interact with JavaScript um, and to build out UIs using like a Swift UI kind of um, UI building uh, system, uh, which is super, super neat. Uh, so if the next time you want to play around with uh, front-end single-page applications, then take a look at Swift Wasm because it is actively developed and maintained. And I think like 10 days ago, it got a whole bunch of new stuff to their Tokamak stuff for all the new Swift UI stuff. So definitely nice. worth checking out. Uh, statement number two. So Swift Embedded is a tool chain to compile Swift so it can run on a microcontroller directly with no host operating system. Uh, so both of you believe this one to be true, and it absolutely is. Uh, so this is for those Arduino kind of based uh, similar systems. It's not Arduino specifically, uh, but this particular project was a student thesis, I believe, and they got Swift compiling over to a microcontroller. It needs to be on a board with at least two megabytes of flash. Uh, because Swift is still hefty. It's not necessarily <laughs> optimized to be used in these embedded systems. For instance, it includes all the rules around Unicode, uh, which you don't really need in that situation. Um, so Swift Embedded tries to cut out a lot of that as much as it can, so Unicode still works, but capitalizing Unicode is just kind of a no-op uh, for the most part. So uh, a lot of optimizations like that were taken, so that way the Swift libraries themselves get compiled down to one megabyte, which leaves the other megabyte for your code, which hopefully you can do something practical with. Uh, so good job so far. This leads into statement number two. So Spencer, you believe this one to be false. And to go over it one more time, project one is an attempt at implementing an x86 kernel completely in Swift that can run bare metal on Intel Macs and PCs. 
And this is basically the same thing as uh, Swift Embedded, if you think about it. Just instead of an embedded microcontroller, it's an Intel microcontroller. Uh, not really a microcontroller at that point, but uh, <laughs> it is just as possible. So this one is also true. Sorry, Spencer. Um, and it's pretty cool. It's basically, if you want to compile Swift down to just here's a ROM and have that ROM be loaded up into memory, then it will work without any existing kernel that's supporting it. So basically it becomes a kernel mm. itself. Uh, cool. So that is uh, absolutely true, which brings us to statement number one, which is uh, completely fabricated on my part. So good job, Johnny, for sussing that out. And <laughs> Droid UI it does not exist. Although you can get Swift compiling on Android, there is no intercompatibility with the Java libraries that come on Android, uh, which are completely necessary if you want to build a UI and do anything, pretty much. Uh, so it's not yet possible to build like full-featured apps for Android, but just like you wouldn't build a full-featured app with Rust, you can still build out a component of your app using Swift uh, and interconnect, interop with that using C uh, function names and stuff like that, Most like most libraries. They're oftentimes written in C++, but you have a C interop uh, header that allows you to access all the functionality there. Um, so all of that is uh, there, but the interconnect between Java and Swift is not currently there. So that's what's really holding back uh, using Swift on things like Android. So if you wanted to play around with that, go, go ahead and uh, help that project out with your support. I'm sure it will be very much appreciated. So... Good job, Johnny. Cool. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> I never get these right. So as always, I want to personally thank everyone for listening in this week. Please be sure to follow us on Twitter at Code Completion to know when new episodes get released. And feel free to tweet at us if there's ever a topic you'd like for us to dig into. Most importantly, as a small podcast, please be sure to share this with your friends and family who are also interested in any part of the process of app development. It's your support that enables us to continue doing this, and we hope to grow a healthy community around everything we discuss. Once again, I want to give my thanks to Johnny, who is at Johnny D. Hicks. That's J-O-H-N-N-Y-D-H-I-C-K-S on Twitter. Spencer, who is at Spencer C. Curtis. That's S-P-E-N-C-E-R-C-C-U-R-T-I-S on Twitter for joining me this week. My name, once again, is Dimitri. You can find me at Dimitri Buniel. That's D-I-M-I-T-R-I-B-O-U-N-I-O-L. And we'll see you all next week. Bye. Thanks, everyone. So, Johnny, how was your watch buying experience? <laughs> oh, man. Well, my youngest daughter woke up at 4.50 crying, so I had to go get her a bottle. And by the point I got back into bed, I was like, well, my alarm's going off in 50 minutes to pre-order, so I might as well just stay awake. So I've been up since 4.50 this morning. I did get a little Ooh. bit more sleep after pre-orders, but yeah, it was an early morning. Um, so I haven't ordered a watch since the Series 4, so it's been about three years. Um, and since that time, uh, you know, they've given you the ability to sort of customize the watch band that you want, um, which I wasn't super aware of. Uh, so... Again, I guess going back, like this whole experience has been really awkward. I mean, we had the event last month. They said Apple Watches were coming sometime in the fall. And then last week, I think it was John Prosser who said, it's happening next week. And then it's Apple the fall. <laughs> like, confirmed shortly thereafter. And, but then there was like nothing on the Apple Store app that indicated that pre-orders were taking place you could see that you could pre-order the watch on just apple.com but the apple store app if you went to apple watch it just said series six or uh the apple watch se like there was no indication that a series seven was was coming or you know for for people like us who actually watch the events we're we're well aware sort of what this product release cycle is but it's but you know some random joe person could have gotten onto the Apple store last night and ordered themselves a series six and had been none the wiser that the series yeah. seven was going to come out in 12 hours, right? Like got to make those point, extra hundred dollars in profit. Apple's got to get rid of the rest of their series six. Um, anyway, so 
we finally heard again John Prosser again said what the prices would be because nobody knew what the prices were going to be. Nobody knew what the configurations, what color bands you would have. Like all of that had to take place during pre-orders, which is usually a time when you want to like have your cart done and mm-hmm. check out like as fast as you can. So this morning I'm I get on and uh you know they have their like our design watches, which I didn't think anything of that was like, okay, so you can get the green watch with the solo loop, which is just like this, or I guess it's like the sport solo loop. Um, and I was like, I don't want that. Like that one, you have to measure your wrist size and order yeah. like a size one through nine. Just like, I want just the normal sport band, but it didn't look like you could get that. And then even with like the styles that they pick out for each of the different watches, um, there was the, so like I said, the green one only had the solo loop or it had the fancy leather one. That's like $50 more. And I thought that those were the only options. Like if I wanted a green watch, I had to get either the solo loop or the leather and was like, I don't want either of those. Like, just let me, you know? So anyway, I didn't, you know, again, I picked out the styles that apparently Apple sets. And what's even funny is that with all of the different color configurations, there were some that you would select a color and it would say, oh, well, this is only available in the 41 millimeter, not the 45. Or you would select a different color and it would just say unavailable. Like you couldn't even add it to your cart. And this is all, this is all during pre-orders, like two minutes after it opened. So I don't think that those color configurations were sold out. I think it was just like, this is coming at some point. Like it just, the whole experience was so awkward. Clearly so I ended you up had needed to buy like a series five and a six in between. So you'd be up to date on all these new practices, right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. So it wasn't clear to me. So I ordered two watches that I was like, well, I, I like the watch component of it. I don't really like the bands, but mm-hmm. these are my only options. And then when I, was no longer under the pressure of like hurrying and getting my pre-order in. I was like, okay, what's going on here? And then I go in and I could see like, oh, create your own style. And all of a sudden you have access to hundreds of different watch bands, right? That you can (laughs) add. And I was like, what? (laughs) This was not clear. This was not clear. I mean, I I know I woke up at 450, but (laughs) it was not clear to me that that was, that was the case. So I ended up ordering, having two orders One with two watches that I didn't really want. And then another with like exactly what I wanted. Um, But again, the whole thing was so weird of just like, this is, uh, this band's only available for a 41 millimeter for no good reason. And this color is not available. And it's like, well then don't have it. Like people are wasting time going through trying to like configure and pick colors. It's like, if you don't have it, if you literally can't even pre-order it, then don't have it as an option. Like, I don't know. It was just, yeah. it was the weirdest product launch I've ever pre-ordered for. Um, and yeah, anyway, watches, at least one of the watches comes next Friday. Mm-hmm. And then my Apple watch doesn't come. So my wife's comes next Friday. And then uh, mine comes at the end of, uh, at the end of October. Uh, so not too bad. Uh, but it was not it was not a fun morning. I was just stressed all morning. I think the weirdest part about that is just the lack of um it, like like you mentioned, you know, someone someone could literally order a series 6 yesterday and just not even know that it was a thing if they're not following it. Like it's super bizarre to me that they didn't have any like hey, we're going to have pre-orders up or here's the preview for this just so you could see like available this day or available to pre-order this day. Super weird. And it sounds like the ordering experience was just not great either. So that's a bummer. I just, I feel like this whole series um, of watches just not what they were planning for. I'm sure, I, I feel like the rumors were somewhat true of they were probably planning on a completely different tooled watch where with flat sides or something where probably just due to what's going on in the world, they couldn't get it. And they just like backpedaled a little bit and said, okay, we'll, we'll settle for this as maybe an intermediary or something is my guess at least. 
I, I think it's really amazing that a lot of models slipped to January delivery for the watches, which is just oh, a really? little bit frightening compared considering like they had to push the release by a week or so apart from the iPhone and now it's just like unavailable. So I did not know that. If you That's did not crazy. order a watch, I'm sorry. <laughs> if you listen to this it might be way too late. Yeah. Yeah, so, I don't know. The The whole product was weird, and even the rumors of it having flat sides, and then during, like, the big reveal, it was like, nope, it's exactly the same. Like, I don't think those rumors had any basis it's, in all yeah. honesty. Yeah, I, I know. I don't know. I, I don't know. It seems like it, that might have been the, the I th- designs they went in with and they were planning on. Yeah. And they just ran into production issues and they're like, there's no way we're going to fix this in time for the holidays. So let's just. So a make year and a half ago, they smaller. decided, let's make the bezel and smaller. That, that's my point. Like, it takes, there's such yeah, a it's large true. lead time on getting and it's too... like production ramped up. Like, the insides are not the same for any of this. Like, it might use the same chip, but then everything else is kind of different around it. Yeah. I don't think there's been any of what people have been saying uh, in terms of oh they couldn't get it ready in time so they scrapped that idea like that would have had to happen a year ago yeah that's a good point and i mean it is a completely different chassis so either way there's like new tooling whether it is flat or not so Mm -hmm. whether it's flat or now you know more rounded or whatever so that's a good point yeah and anyone who's ever contributed to a kickstarter knows exactly how long new tooling takes (laughs) Um, yeah so it's not a fast process it is most likely the reason it's two years afterwards and you still didn't get your thing oh i I feel personally attacked by that one it's not like you started a kickstarter that ran into production issues no but i i contributed to one like three years ago and i still haven't got it so it reminds me there was a a company that was making masks because COVID, um, but it had little LEDs in, on the inside of it, so it would talk. Oh. Um, it would jabber away as you talked. Um, and that, like, right when COVID started, that was a thing still not delivered. But it looks like it's still still on point. So <laughs> I, guess it, I guess we'll see which one outlasts the other. Will COVID come out? and stopping a thing before the mask ships or will the mask ship and there's still another three years of COVID to deal with who knows 